Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. Earlier today, I was talking to my very dear friend, Jeff Martyr. And Jeff Martyr was a comic. Uh, But he was a comic, if you don't know, in the late 80s, early 90s. He was known for doing a bit with two microphones in the right side of his brain and his left side of the brain. And he told me that my guest was instrumental with him coming up with that bit. I don't know if she knows this, but many years ago, she was hanging out with his first wife, the original Mrs. Martin. I loved her. She was so nice. We were really good friends. Well, he told me, he said to you, he said uh, he had all these one-liners that he didn't know what to do in his act. And you said to him, well, just do them as a standalone act. And as you said that, the two microphones popped in his head. So I don't know if you knew that. Wow. But, okay, well, I should be getting some kind of a royalty, so I'll be in touch with him. <laughs> but people, my guest, she's an amazing comic. Her book, My Life and Dog yeah, Beauties, and is coming out. Yes, I did. I was very good friends with them. And yes, thank you for mentioning my lovely book, My Life and Dog Years. My doggie's right down here. And well, let's read it under. Well, okay, so you have a memoir. What mm-hmm. made you, now you've written books, you've written movies. What made you finally decide to write a memoir? Because... That's a hard thing to write because if people don't like it, you're like, that's my life. But if they love it, you go, that is my life. So what made you decide to finally write this? Well, first, I started writing it before the pandemic. And I was just writing it here and there when I wasn't working. I'd say, well, let's do it because I had a whole career before I was a comedian. Uh, I was a dance. I was a singer dancer on Broadway for 10 years and I did six Broadway shows and I did tons of summer stock and industrials and commercials. And and then I've been doing comedy for a really long time, too. And when the pandemic hit, I said, well, there's no better time to really do it than now because I can't leave the house because I might die. So I started writing it and um, I didn't realize I was writing a memoir. I thought I was writing an autobiography. But an autobiography is now a memoir, just as pasta used to be spaghetti. Now it's pasta and, um, let's see, various things. I I have it in my act now, Influencer, where they tell you all the great things. That used to be a show off. So, you know, you got a whole bunch of new titles now. So I have written, ladies and gentlemen, da-da-da-da-da-da, a memoir. And it's my life in dog years. Now, now, how did you come up with the title? Because I know you have your dog here, but I'm sure you have a very uh, glorious past with dogs. So is that I've where- always I've always had a dog. So I de- decided to divide my life up into my five dogs. And um, when I was growing up, I because they were always my companions and they were my companions in different ways. And, you know, people people love their dogs and I love their dog. And I thought maybe people could relate to the fact that when I was growing up, I was an only child and my dog was kind of my sibling. And then when I moved to New York, I was only 15 because I left I left home and I um, had a dog that I got in a pound called Agatha. And she was my best friend because I was very young and stupid and no one wanted to talk to me. Then when Martin and I got married, we had Bonkers, who was like our first child. Then when my daughter needed a dog that was more her size after Bonkers passed, we got Twinkle and she was like um, my my other daughter. And then uh, we have Betsy now and Betsy's like my grandchild. So tell me about the first dog you got when you said you were 15, you moved to New York. First of all, that, that was been, my second dog. I got um, that was Agatha. Yeah, that, that must have been very. Was it very scary for you at fifteen going to New York? I mean, because you know, when I was eighteen, I went to college and I stayed in New Jersey, and it was an hour from home, and I could, you know, I could come back home on weekends, which I didn't because I figured, why am I going to go to college and come back on weekends? I want to stay down there. But for you, what drove you to New York? What made you go to New York when you were fifteen? Was it something where you just did you just know that you wanted to dance? Because I know you started off as a dancer. Yes. Yes. And there were other extenuating circumstances, which, again, I wanted to write about in my book because people always say comedians have something tragic that has happened in their lives. And I think most people do. And But um, people handle tragedy in different ways. Luckily, I decided to throw myself into a career. My mother was very sick and she died when I was 13. And my father immediately married somebody who didn't like me so by the time I was 15 I kind of really wasn't wanted on the premises anymore and I was very dedicated to dancing I'd been at a ballet company I I don't know how I graduated high school but I did last three 
three weeks, I remember, for all final exams, when I was in the 10th grade, I had my father write a letter saying I was in the hospital and I took three buses because I got in a show at the Deauville Hotel of Miami Beach. So I was a pretty determined kid and I wanted to dance on Broadway. So I moved to New York and I, um, when I was 15, I, I turned six, I graduated from high school uh, that summer. I got my extra credits that, where I could get my diploma. And then I went and took all kinds of lessons. I took, my father paid for me to have a room at the Barbizon Hotel for Women, which was about as big as this computer. And I uh, took ballet and jazz and then tap and acrobatics. And in three months, I got my first show called Zorba. And I went around the country when I was 16 with uh, Cheetah Rivera and John Raitt starring in a show called Zorba. So I thought all of that was kind of an interest, interesting background. And from there, I was, you know, working in show business as a dancer and singer actress for 10 years. And then one day I was in Annie on Broadway and said, oh, my gosh, you know, I was I was 27. And I said, I just think I should learn how to talk again, late talker, because I was always dancing. And I said, there aren't too many female comedians in let me try that because they won't be as competitive as when I have to go and audition with a thousand singers, dancers and actresses. So that's kind of the, the, the beginning of my career was all that time on Broadway. And I got to work with such great people that I thought it might be interesting because I got to work with Hal Prince and Michael Bennett and Stephen Sondheim and Gower Champion and David Merrick and Peter Gennaro, lots of really, really good people and i got to be in good shows like mac and mabel's and follies and promises promises and annie and i thought that was an interest interesting things to write about that people didn't know what's it like being 16 well first of all the determination is amazing you know that going to miami just you know the determination when we're younger a lot of us we have determination but it's to like get a paper route you know we're not like going to go dance but for you what was it like to be 16 and then being i mean cheetah rivera i mean you know you're you're in a show and you're you're a kid I mean, what was that like for you? It must have been awestruck, but it also must have been a little scary. Oh, yeah, it was scary. But I've always done things that are kind of scary. And I wasn't actually in the show. I was hired because I wasn't equity when I auditioned. I just still remember that audition. Thousands of dancers. Because when you go on a non-equity call, it's everybody in the world. Equity, the people are in the union. So I got my equity card from Zorba and I was a non-equity dancer. So they made me what was called the swing girl. And at the audition, after the three auditions I had to go through, they said, are you okay with being the, the swing girl? And I always found, again, it's in my book, it's better to say yes than to say no, except to skiing and racquetball, to those two things you say no. <laughs> but um, I said yes, and I didn't know. I thought at some point I would swing on a rope into the show. I had no idea. Well, what a swing girl is, is you learn everybody's part. And if anybody is sick, they put you in immediately in their part. And that's not an easy job because there were, you know, I had to learn six different dancers. I had to learn all of the things that they did in the show and keep it in my brain. So it was extra scary. And I remember the first time I went on, I put it, I put it in my book. I, um, I was in the bows and you did we did this certain step that we had to do in the bows of Greek dancing and I fell because I tried to jump too high and I fell in front of Cheetah Rivera on the bows and she wasn't happy and she mentioned that I should never do that again <laughs> and I said I promise Ms. Rivera I'll never jump in front of you and fall down again but that was uh that was quite traumatic I could still remember that moment now, you got into comedy, and it's funny, because I, I used to do comedy. I was out of Philadelphia, and I think you used to play the comedy works. All um, the time. Above the Middle East restaurant, which I used to go back of and forth. Of course. And then the, that we used to stay at this really cool hotel that used to be a brothel. <laughs> and it was just, I'm telling you, the, you go in the room, there was a bed and a sink. And I don't know what they were used <laughs> for before. I didn't want to know. But there was just, the bathroom was down the hall. There was a bed and a sink. And it was the funniest little place. But I really cherished all those times that... I became a comedian and, and, you know, had to do the things that comedians have to do, go on the road to these silly places all the time. It was fun. I always had fun doing whatever I did. Well, Jeff had said he had booked you. You would come down from New York and he worked at his club, City Lights. And he uh -huh. said, he said you were such a, a student of the craft. He said you would sit there looking at your notes. Until, I still do. Until, and until they said, ladies and gentlemen, Rita Rudner, and then you'd 
get up on stage, do your act, then you'd come back and sit down and go back into your notes. A lot of comics, when I did comedy, you know, before the show, you'd pace. And then after the show, you'd be like, I'm done, you know. What what gave you the discipline? I mean, what gave you the discipline to sit there and become such a student of the craft? Was it just a love for your material? Or what made you so into it? I think because I started in ballet. And ballet is a very, very technical craft. I mean, you don't do a jeté before you do a tendu. You do it one at a time. You don't do a plié before you learn the first positions. I mean, it's a very, very structured world, ballet. And I think I kind of approached comedy in the same way that I learned ballet. So I said, what is a joke? Why is it funny coming from me? Is this something, what is a different style of joke? And I still, because I was in San Jose, uh, I just got back yesterday, I was doing a show there. And I still have to go over my notes for at least a half an hour, probably an hour before I get on stage to see what I'm going to leave out, what I'm going to put in, what thing, new thing I'm going to try, how much confidence. And you really don't know what you're going to do until you see the audience, because the audience that you're performing for is going to tell you kind of which way to move. And I, that's the old, what, who said it? Um, not It wasn't George Foreman. It was... Uh, a fighter, the one who bit his, uh, his the other guys, Mike Tyson, the ear guy. He's everyone, or somebody said it. I don't know. If I, if I, everyone has a plan till they get punched in the face, but everyone has a plan before they see the audience. But I always said, at least I'm going to have a plan because you can't go on stage without a plan. So I always have my plan. Now, as a kid, did you ever think you'd become a comedian? Like for me, never, never, you, never. Okay, now, now, so you were in New York and you were 27. And you mm. felt that there wasn't enough female comedians. So did you start writing an act first, then try to get stage time? Or did you scout out where you could get stage time and then say, I'll write an act? Well, how did that such a good thing? I think I went to the improv because it was easy to get to the improv from um, Annie. Because Annie was the Alban Theater 53rd between Broadway and 8th. And the improv was 44th between 8th and 9th. So... I could go there and I sat and I looked at comedians and then I asked Steve Middleman, he won't remember this, but I asked Steve Middleman, how much does comedy material cost? And he said something like $3,000 for five minutes and there's no guarantee it will work. So I thought, well, I've just got to learn how to write material, don't I? <laughs> I better sit down and try and write material. So then I tried to write some material, which had nothing to do with anything I eventually said, and sat on the pavement and uh, at the improv. We had to get there and sit all day before, and they would give a certain amount of people stage time on Monday nights because it, uh, it was the um, the the audition night. And I wasn't good at all, but I got laughs between the jokes. So people thought I was funny, but my jokes were terrible because I didn't know how to do it. And Chris Albrecht, who was at that time the uh, manager of the improv, said, you know, you've got something very funny about you, but you don't know what you're doing. So why don't you, he let me watch comedians. And I watched comedians for months and I would sit there and go, oh, this is funny. Why is it funny tonight? Why is it? And I would sit there all night after Annie. I would go and, and watch comedians and try and figure stuff out. And then I started going to the library. And at that point, I was near the Lincoln Center Library. And I would watch, uh, listen to Woody Allen records because he was kind of a quiet Jewish person. And I'm a quiet Jewish person. I said, well, let's listen to how a quiet Jewish person does it. And then I remembered my mother had liked Jack Benny. And I went to the Museum of Broadcasting and started watching old Jack Benny shows because he was never overtly funny. He was funniest when he didn't even say anything. So I thought, you know, that was such a good character. And then I kind of subconsciously combined those two characters of Woody Allen writing what I considered to be good jokes and Jack Benny being uh, what to be what I considered a perfect comedic character. And finally, after watching comedy for about, I guess, three or four months, I got another chance to do an act that I had written, and it was much better when, when I finally did it. But before I went there, I started, you know, at that point, there were all these 
bars because comedy was getting so big and they would have comedy nights. And they weren't comedy clubs or anything. They were restaurants where they'd rented a microphone for one night a week and they had comedy night at the stage bar or something that was around the corner. So I started going there because when I couldn't go on at the improv, I said, I got to get on somewhere before I audition again because it's not going to be good. And then across the street uh, from Annie was the Ye Old Triple Inn where they had comedy one night a week. So I just started finding these little places where I could do you know, two minutes, three minutes. So I had a new five minutes that I could audition for at the improv. And by the time I did that, it was funny. And then I started hanging out there and got on once in a while. How important do you think it was to watch acts? Because I, when I started out, I worked the door at the Comedy Factory outlet. And the reason I worked the door there in Philly was because one, on open mic, we got an automatic slot. We didn't have to pick out of the hat. And we got seven and five minutes instead of five. But the other reason was just to watch some of the acts, you know, and, and I, I started comedy in 88. So there was there was so many great headliners coming through. And then we would run across the street where we would be at the comedy works and we'd see those shows because two completely different kind of acts, both amazing acts. But I learned so much just watching. And a lot of people don't, you know, don't watch. I and mean, how important do you think it was to you in those formidable ages, that stage, to watch and really just absorb the craft? It's huge. How else do you learn if you're not watching other people doing it and analyzing it? I mean, that's what anybody does. And if you're learning to write a movie, you got to read a lot of movie scripts and you have to analyze them. And, and when we, Martin and I, my husband started to write movies, I, um, I went to and took a few courses in movie structure. And, and then when we started going to movies, we didn't enjoy them so much as rewrite them. <laughs> well, I said, there's not a lot of money in rewriting a movie that's already been made, but, um, you have to analyze what you're doing. I'm sure anyone in any craft, if you're a lawyer, you have to look up other cases that have been before you. Otherwise, you can't be a lawyer. And I don't think as doctors really just go in and say, oh, look, there's a kidney. Well, no, because a lot of people don't. I've talked to people who don't really care about that. And I'm like, that's like you said, that's, you know, you listen to the Woody Allen album. I mean, when I listen to the Woody Allen stand up album, it's uh, from Mr. Kelly's in Chicago. It's just amazing when you listen to him write, because he will do a bit and do a bit and do a bit and do a bit, and then it does a payoff. And that really sat there as a, as a young comic for me. You don't want to be them, but it, it influences you. And I think that's a great thing. Absolutely. I used to sit there with uh, and diagram his jokes with a paper and pencil. And when he'd get to the laugh, I would say, well, here's a laugh. Why are they laughing there? And where does the surprise come in? What word does, you know, you, I, I, that's just the way my brain worked. And then I, be, I didn't know I had this obsession, but then I became obsessed with, with comedy. And I, that's all I would do because I lived in New York. I got to go to lots of comedy. First of all, I had the um, Museum of Broadcasting. I had the Lincoln Center Library. And we'd had the Jacques Tati Film Festival, the Charlie Chaplin, the Buster Keaton, the Preston Sturgis you know, um, the Mike Nichols, all the, the film festivals would go on at these little places. And since I didn't work during the day, I worked at night uh, on Broadway, I could do that in the day. So I kind of did my own little comedy school, which uh, paid off for me because, but I, I didn't do it because I've got to do that. I just like doing it. So it's something I, I was interesting to me. Now, when did your career start gaining traction where you said, I can leave Broadway, I can leave dancing? Because dancing is what you've been doing for a long time and it's mm. it's a new all of a sudden it's a new horizon and comedy was starting to blow up as you said you know there used to be bars in the philadelphia era or you probably played betty's fireside up in north jersey which was the worst hell gig ever i didn't play that it one. was the worst they had a wire oh, i missed that yeah you're, you're better than us but yeah. uh, but um when did you decide that you can move away from dancing and start going full-time into comedy after Annie, I didn't want to audition. I never wanted to audition for another uh, Broadway show again. I was I had a part. I was playing Lily St. Regis and Annie, and it was a good part. And I just said, I've done this. I've done this for 10 years. And um, it wasn't, I, I wasn't going to make any money at comedy, but I was still doing commercials. I did lots of commercials in New York. So I had a, a, not a big income, but I had an income from commercials. And I was also doing industrial shows, which I go, I tell about 
in my book where, um, you know, I used to sing about cars and cheese and clocks and whatever kind of show that they would have. And, and they were hard to get industrial shows because they were really, really good paying jobs at that point. So even though I left Broadway and I wasn't making any money at comedy, I still had a minor income and I wasn't really going to rely on that for an income. But I said, this is what I like to do now. So it's what I'm going to do. Now, when did you start gaining traction and making a living? Because I know for me, there was a chain called the Comedy Cabaret, and it was uh, they had all these clubs, and I got they let me MC, and they gave me like thirty weeks. It still was like one hundred fifty dollars for the weekend, oh. but it was working. You know, when did you start getting the work where you you started sitting there and, and getting work and being able to start making money on it? After I got on television, when I did um, the first, I don't know what it's called. It was the tenth anniversary of. The Catch a Rising Star or something, and they let me go on. And I have the whole story of that in my book where I was supposed to go on after Andy Kaufman. And thank heavens, the producer said, maybe I'm going to sneak you on before because I don't know what the audience is going to be like after Andy Kaufman. And I was so lucky because he just destroyed the audience with a, a routine that was very, very before its time, but where he had a fight with his manager who was sitting in the audience and they started screaming at each other. So after that, it wasn't you know, really conducive for comedy for a little while in that audience. So um, after that, I got on Letterman. And I think after I was on the Rodney Dangerfield special with uh, with Sam Kinison and Louis Anderson and Bob Saget, I think that really solidified me. That was my third kind of big deal. And from that, I got Women of the Night, which was me, Paula Poundstone, Judy Tenuta and Ellen DeGeneres. So because I was a kind of a constant presence in comedy, I began making, you know, a, not a great living, but I certainly was, you know, happy with what I was doing. Tell me about the, the HBO special, because for me, I loved watching them. And you look back now and they're just, they're packed. The Roddy Jansfield specials, they're packed with talent. Was What was it like when you, how did you get it? And what was it like when you recorded it? I was working at Catch a Rising Star. And um, one, Rodney Dangerfield used to come in and he saw my act and he called me over and he was Rodney and he said, I saw your act. You're very funny. Takes a long time. Sometimes you never make it. And I went, well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> nice to meet you, Rodney. <laughs> and he said, but I really want you to be on my comedy special. Uh, we're going to film it at Dangerfields. And uh, again, I said, I'm in. Because one thing that I, I tell my daughter, too, um, who is a, is a musician and she's in college right now, is people respond to enthusiasm. And if you go, I don't know, like, well, when is it going to be? When's it going to be? They go, well, who, who wants you anyway? Right. So I just said, yes, thank you so much. Thank you for doing it. And I um, got to be on the Rodney Dangerfield special. And it was a really, really, it was a high pressured night. But I felt that I had done enough where I was ready for it to do those five minutes that I got. And I remember uh, Sam Kinison coming off stage because I was standing on the side of the stage. And he said, I think I did it. I think I did it. I think I got through to the audience. I think this is going to be. And it sure it was. It really broke Sam Kinison. I mean, it made my career go like three feet further forward. And it made his career like zoom into the stratosphere because he was so different and he was, I thought he was, he was, um, he, he was very, very funny in today's world. I don't think it would fly, but in that world, I just thought if anyone is going to be off color and swear, it should be him because he's so funny when he does it. And I just thought he was a really, really special comedian. So as your career is getting bigger, what's it like going out on the road back then? Because you know, once, as you said, you started doing comedy in New York. There wasn't a lot of women. And even when I started in 88 in Philadelphia, we only had like three or four skiing and a few other people. Not a lot. But what was it like when you would go on the road to a crowd that's, you know, backward ass? Like they're not used to seeing a woman and your delivery is much different. And you're very, you know, you're pristine on stage and you're, you're very, you know, any questions. You know, it's not what some people are mm. used to. What was, I mean, was there some just awful hell gigs where people just didn't get you? In the very, very beginning before television, when I was working the really rough clubs in New Jersey, 
uh, I could come home wounded because the worst thing that people can do really is not heckle you because you can deal with a heckler, but you can't deal with people who aren't paying attention to you and who are having conversations between you know themselves and the tables when they're too loud. So that was before I got on television. But once I got on TV and they could say, Rita Rudner from The Letterman Show, Rita Rudner from the Rodney Dangerfield special, that I kind of commanded a certain amount of respect. So people were, I think people were afraid I would cry. So they, <laughs> they were very nice to me. And once the first three or four jokes when I was funny, they relaxed and they said, oh, we get this. This is the, she's going to do a laid back style of comedy and it's going to be funny. So on the road, I, I remember staying in the bad condos, you know, the comedy condos where they're, for the last comedian who was there had stolen all the light bulbs. <laughs> and there was one, oh, I got into one and it was like nine o'clock at night. And you know, when the smoke alarm doesn't stop and it's this, and I didn't know how to get up to the ceiling. I kept jumping up trying to, sh I, if I had a gun, I would have shot it, you know? So, I mean, they, they were some pretty raunchy places, but gradually by the time I was doing my own HBO specials, I would get a hotel room and that was really nice. And I, when I graduated to hotel rooms on the road, it was, uh, I didn't ever want to go back to the comedy condos, but they were fun in, in themselves, you know? To, to be in that atmosphere. Now, you did a lot of TV appearances. How did you constantly write? Because it's not like you're writing a long chunk. You write jokes. Short, I mean, mm -hmm. you write a lot of material. Were you disciplined where, okay, so you get you do the Tonight Show, so you got to do seven. And then, you know, you really can't do that seven again, you know, on TV. So how often were you writing? Were you getting, were you writing all the time? Was it just something where you would sit there and go, I have to write or did you just sit there and something would pop into your head and you go, I'm going to write that. And then other things will pop into your head. It, it, it happens in different ways. There's no one way to be creative. And right now, the way I, then, then, then I had to say, I'm going to a comedy club every night and I'm going to try something new every night. So when you try something new every night, you have to spend some time during the day and figure out what it is that you're going to do that's going to be new that night. So if I'm not working for a while, I just don't know if anything's funny unless I can say it in front of an audience. I mean, I can sit there here and write something, but I mean, like I was um, going, I was working in Scotland once at the Edinburgh Festival, and I went up on a train with another comedian who would know, but who's telling he's not American, but he was working in another country. And he said, I wrote a, a new act on the way to the festival today, a whole new act. And I said, well, how do you do that? How do you sit there on a train and write an act without having an audience? I mean, I have to work for the audience. If the audience laughs, I leave it in. And if they don't, it might have been a sentence and I take it out and I never say it again. So I always have to do like little by little by little adding things. And when I was working in Las Vegas, because I did that almost every night for 10 years when I had my own theater in Las Vegas, I could do that. And people said, oh, does it get boring during the same act every night? And I said, well, no. First of all, the audience is different. So it's a different response. And second of all, I always have two or three things that I can muscle in to see if I can create a new moment. And when I do create a new moment, it's really, really satisfying still. Like last night in San Jose, I had to do, a, you know, an hour set. It was for a, a big um, charity that I, I was working for. It was a private show. But I I had one new joke that really, really worked. And I was so excited. So it's still really exciting to be able to create something. Now, how do you remember all the jokes? Because I, I did a show. I'd have been on stage for two and a half years. And I did a show on Valentine's Day with a friend of mine. And there was like 300 people there. And I was nervous. I mean, I'd have been on for two and a half years. And, and I'm looking at my Fitbit. And my heart's like 120. And I get uh -huh. up there. And I, had, I, I, I was worried I was going to lose track. But I do a little bit of longer bits. For you, how do you... Re I mean, you do an, an amazing amount of jokes. I mean, how do you Three jokes a minute. How do you Three jokes I mean, a minute. So that's how you're doing 180 jokes in an hour set. How do you remember that? Because that's, that's amazing. I have them in, um, I would, 
the closest analogy I can give you is, you know, sofas where you can move them around modular, I guess they call them sofas. And all of a sudden they are a love seat. All of a sudden they're, I have in my act, I have sections that I can move around. So I can make a section as long or as short as I want that particular time that I'm doing it, depending on the audience that I'm working for and what they seem to be responding to and what I think they will respond to. So that's how I, I remember the jokes as I keep them in modules. But very often, you know, like the other day, I was doing a show in Las Vegas last weekend. And one of the audience members said, do the one about um, the pillow that, and I, I couldn't remember it. You know, I said, well, you do it. He did it. I said, oh, that's funny. You know, so a lot of um, jokes that I used to do, sometimes I don't remember. And I go, oh, my gosh, I wrote that because that was such a long time ago, which is, I think, is a good thing. I also have so many repeat customers that come to see me over and over again. And I always want them to be able to experience something new. I never want to be um, somebody who just does it by rote. Now, how did the Vegas show come about? Because I'm sure you were, you know, in, earlier in your career, I'm sure you're opening for people in Vegas because a lot of comics did that. But how did you oh, get of your? Course. How did you get your own? Well, first of all, who are some of the people you opened for in those in those young the, in, when you in your first gigs in Vegas? Um, Smothers Brothers, Tony Bennett, Julio Iglesias. There was a Sergio. I can't remember his last name. It was a Sergio Mendez. Okay. It was a singer. Um, Hal Linden. The Everly Brothers was my first thing I ever opened for anybody was the Everly Brothers at what, the Hilton Hotel. What was that like? I got to find out. I don't it, know. I can't, I can't remember. I, I, I know it was scary. <laughs> but it, it was always a... I think it's a really trial by fire when you open for a famous person because they're not there to see you. And... I, I made a joke about this on the Johnny Carson show because I used to open for Julio Iglesias and the introduction would go like this. Welcome to Caesar's Palace. Welcome to the showroom. Welcome to the Julio Iglesias show. And now please welcome Rita Rudner. And oh God, you could just hear the air being let out of the room. And there were, I said, there are a bunch of women in a sexual frenzy, and I'm just standing there telling them a joke. Oh, God. So I used to say, I, I used to apologize. I'm so sorry I'm not Julio. I wish I was Julio. Julio will be here in a second. He's more handsome than you can possibly imagine. And I used to go from there. So as long as you open with something on their wavelength. I mean, if I had just started with, so I'm Rita Renner and other, it would never have worked. And the, one of the most important things and the hardest things is to judge how to get into your act in different audiences. So I think because I learned how to do that, working for so many, opening for so many different people, uh, it, it kind of gave me a, a, a leg up into how to start my act when I do my regular shows. So, well, the Vegas show, how did you end up doing the Vegas show? Was was such a huge hit. That just did all, they, did they... all this is, well, I'm just going to plug my book again. All this is right here, okay. right here in my book. Yeah. Um, it was a long, long road. I, I started opening for people. Then I was did my own act at the improv where I did five shows a night, you know, for $30 a week or whatever that was. <laughs> but it was fun. And then when I'm, I, it, it is a combination of me and my husband, Martin, because I met Martin because I, I, um, I, he hired me. I was a comedian. He produced shows and he hired me to do London, the Edinburgh Festival, Australia. He hired, hired me a lot. So he was a producer. And when we got together, he said, I'm going to try not to get involved in your career, but after two weeks, he had to because I was just saying yes to anything. I was just so happy anyone would want to hire me and listen to my jokes. And he created, uh, he was walking around and noticed that there were rooms he could he could rent because that's what he was in the business of doing. He knew how to rent rooms and put shows on. And the first one was the Copa Room and the Sands, and they wouldn't have a female comedian alone. And there had to be a man. And Martin hired Jeff Altman. So I did that show with Jeff Altman and I did lots of co-host job, um, co-star jobs with Louis Anderson and Dennis Miller and um, in, in Vegas for a year. And every time I go to Vegas, it was very lucrative and it was a lot of fun 
And then I started getting my own headlining shows in uh, the Monte Carlo and Desert Inn and the, and the Sahara and the Big Room. And so then I was on, I was finally big enough to be on my own. And then when Martin and I had had enough of Hollywood, I got offered a room at the MGM. And again, we said yes, because they didn't know it was the Catch a Rising Star Room in the MGM. It was right in the middle of the casino. And they didn't know what to do with it because they were uh, negotiating with naked French women who were being difficult. And it was going to be a very classy naked show because they were French. And if the French, they're classy when they're naked. So um, I, my friend who had hired me at Bally's when I used to uh, work with Louis Anderson all the time said, it's, would you like to just take over this room until we can figure out how, what to do with it? And Martin said, you know, let's just try it and see if it works. Because we had been, wait, my nose is there. We had been, um, and no, he had noticed that there was a very, very popular impressionist comedian called Danny Gans. And nobody knew who he was outside of Vegas, but he was really successful in Vegas. And Martin said, well, if he's that successful in Vegas, you've been on television. How, you know, why don't we get you a smaller room and see how it does? Well, it sold out every night. It was supposed to be for six weeks. I ended up staying there for six months. And then the vice president of um, the MGM was made president of New York, New York. And the French, naked French women came into the thing and they were beautiful and naked. And Felix Rappaport said, I will build you your own uh, theater at New York, New York, if you come live here. So we packed up. We sold our house in L.A. We sold everything. We sold dishes. We sold our furniture we sold uh pillows everything we just moved we moved to las vegas and um we decided to totally change our lives now how did you meet martin i mean he booked he, with, he hired me but then so then you did you start dating right away or how did, no, how did you guys end up getting married well we i had a boyfriend he had a girlfriend and we were friends for years and he hired me and then one day uh he his, he had broken up with his girlfriend and I'd broken up with my boyfriend. And he kept asking me to go to Australia because he had moved to Australia. And he was doing comedy tours around um, Australia in theaters. And he had hired Richard Jenny and Bill Sheft and um, Larry Amorose and people. And they always came back saying we had such a good time in Australia. And I kept saying no because I had a boyfriend and I was working all the time in America. And... I didn't, I was scared, I, at that point I was scared to go to Australia, even though I knew him and I'd worked for him before in London and the Edinburgh, Australia just seemed to be the moon to me. And that was a bit scary. So um, I went and I worked for him in Australia. It was me, Richard Jenny, Larry Amorose in the show on the Gold Coast. And I had broken up with my boyfriend. He'd broken up with his girlfriend and I moved in. And then we've been together ever since. And we've been married for 35 years. And we've been together 38 years. Now, when did you two start to write together? I know you did Peter's Friends. When did you sit there? Right and then. Sit? Right then. Right, we rented a typewriter and we said, let's try and write a movie. And we just, we sat there in, oh, I'm sorry. That's the doorbell. But uh, one of our TVs isn't working. So Martin's going to get that in a minute. So we, we sat down and we had this gorgeous apartment with overlooking the ocean and the beach and Instead of going out and frolicking in the waves, we decided to try to write a movie. And we just, and we did it over and over and over. And when the opportunity to write a movie for Ken Brannigan uh, came up, we were ready to write. That's also in my book is my the most important thing is you can't get ready after the opportunity appears. You have to be ready before the opportunity appears because people aren't waiting for you to get ready. So by that time, we'd been writing movies for a good five years and I'd been to classes and we'd written scripts and we'd studied them and we wrote this movie and Ken was uh, and still is a dynamo and he gets everything done and he just done Henry V, which they called Hank Sank. And he um, said, I love this script and let's film it. So we did that in a castle in in London, in outer England. It was out of outside Potter's Bar, I still remember. Now, was it, well, it, what was it like when you were going on the set to act? You know, you don't get better than Kenneth Branagh. I mean, he's a legend. And Emma Thompson and, yeah, and Hugh Laurie and I mean, Imelda Staunton, yeah, come on. What is that like? Stephen Fry. What is, what, what was that like for you? Because, I mean. Scary. Did you but take again, acting I don't, classes? Did you? I always went to acting classes in New York, yeah. I went to tons of acting classes because, again, you get have to get ready for the opportunity. 
<laughs> so I always knew that I, acting was not going to be my strongest point. Oh, my doggie's right here. Hello. So, but I, I took acting classes from some of the best teachers in New York, and I studied screen um, scene structure and everything. So even though I wasn't, you know, I didn't go to RADA and study Shakespeare, I had been in summer stock plays where I'd done big parts and leads in summer stock. I wasn't a total novice. And I did write myself the smallest part. I wrote myself the part where I disappeared in the middle of the film. And I also wrote a part for myself where I didn't have to do an accent. So I was very careful. So did you want to pursue acting more? I know you've done acting. Or was, is stand-up, has stand-up always taken, has stand-up always taken precedent over acting? I always wanted to do a sitcom. And in my book, I tell you all about all the attempts that I've made. And I think two or three of these attempts, they would have been really good, but it's not just being good. It's getting lucky, getting the opportunity to meet the right person, to get on the right wavelength, to get the right time slot. I mean, you know, Seinfeld blossomed after they finally put him behind cheers. Yeah. I remember calling Jerry up and congratulating him on the show because I loved it. And Martin and I watched it every week. And he'd say, well, isn't anyone watching it? And it wasn't in the right time slot. And then all of a sudden it was behind cheers and it's one of the biggest hits ever in the world. And I love that show. But he, um, it was a little pinch of luck that you had. And at that point, it's just, women weren't given the same opportunity as men to get their own sitcoms. It was always, uh, they, you you can audition for one, but you can't write it. You can't have any say about it. You need a showrunner to tell you what to do. You, it was not the same as uh, a man. I, I remember so many of my male counterparts being offered uh, sitcom deals and mine just didn't pair out, pan out. So instead of knocking my head against the wall, because I knew I was never going to change uh Warren Littlefield's mind or Les Moonves's mind or, you know, any of these people, when the opportunity came to do Las Vegas and Martin and I had discussed adopting a baby, which we did, and I became a mommy, which was, it's still the best thing in my life. And it, it's, you know, that I have a, a daughter who I love so much. So I think you can change things that you want to do. If it's not working out, don't do it. <laughs> Stop doing it. And we just we we just decided to our lives would take a different direction, and that's what we did. Now, through the years, has your how has your writing style changed? In the fact that you know you can't say certain things these days that you could back then. I mean, I think about you know I act stuff that people would say back in the eighties, and now if you did that on stage, everyone would go crazy. Even though looking at it, it wasn't that bad. How do you develop as a writer when you know when you? I've written, I mean, how, do you, first of all, how many jokes do you think you've written in your life? Thousands, 10,000, 20,000? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. So, so how do you, has your writing style changed in a message you're saying, or have you stuck to the same thing through the years? I always try to improve. And um, one of the my big influences was when I worked with Louis Anderson on the road, and Louis and I were great friends. And we used to tour together a lot. And I loved his style. He had the most relaxed style of any comedian and was such a naturally funny person. He was just making me laugh all the time. And I was very controlled. So we started working theaters in the round when Louis and I would go on the road together. And you can't stand still when you're in the round because you're missing half of the audience. And I noticed how Louis did it and how relaxed he was walking around in the in the circle and i said well you know that's what i'm going to try to be louis for a few shows and i'm going to try to not be so rat-a-tat-tat and to try to have a longer uh joke here a shorter joke here go around you know so i louis doesn't know it but he was a big um a big presence in my comedy career because i always admired him so much now with your book one that's the memoir, as we say, which you're right, it used mm -hmm. to be an autobiography. Was there, how did you decide what to put in and what not to put in? Was there some story? I wrote everything down that I remembered, and then um, Martin read it and put them in chronological order because I'm not, I, you know, I screwed some things up. And then the editor read it and said, This you might get sued for. 
check it out. <laughs> the lawyer, the lawyer read it and okayed everything. And uh, I, I think it ended ended with the most um, interesting things. You know, you don't want to write what you had for dinner. So I, you know, I thought working with Bob Hope and doing his last two comedy specials, doing George Burns' 90th birthday party, uh, living next door to Jennifer Lopez, writing the Oscars with Steve Martin, uh, as well as my Broadway career and doing all the comedy specials and the success that I had in Las Vegas and work and meeting Siegfried and Roy. And wait, my doggie wants to come up. Come here, baby. Hey, doggie. She, wait, him. Here she is. There you are. Okay, doggie. Yeah. There she is. Hey, so, yeah. So, um, so that's, you know, I, I just tried to include the most important things in life, but I also included where I got my dogs because Bonkers was uh, the dog that was in all of my shows in Las Vegas because he was originally in a show called um, Stacey Moore's Mess and Mutts at the Excalibur, which was an afternoon show. It was $5 to get in and $3 went to the animal rescue thing. And Bonkers was uh, not in the show when Martin and I came back and he'd been hit by a car and had a broken leg and he was the high jumper. So how's that going to work? So we said, we'll take Bonkers. And I worked so much in Las Vegas that I didn't ever want to put a dog in a hotel, in a kennel for all you know that time. So the um, entertainment director, Richard Sturm at MGM said, you can't have a dog in the hotel unless the dog is in the act. So I put Bonkers in my act, and Bonkers stayed at every hotel and was a big star. And he performed at every hotel, about eight or nine hotels on the Strip. Well, you've had so many highlights, and you said, you know, in the book, you cover Hope, Bob Hope. Do you go into one you got to perform for Obama? Yeah, that was, oh, yeah, absolutely. What is that like? I, met, I know someone who met him at an event, because uh, a guy I know, his, well, he's married to a big CNN reporter, well, his girlfriend is, and he said it was so crazy. You think it was the like State of the Union. You think whatever one of those things, you think you're going to meet him, but you just you shake his hand real quick, and then they usher you away. What's it like to sit there? I mean, inside, because he's such a groundbreaking president and such mm -hmm. a generation. I mean, you know, we, we see him now, because we, we, I live outside Philadelphia, so we're getting all the... Philadelphia stuff. Yeah, he's yeah, campaigning yeah. and he's just so like cool I mean that's like, like cool like no one says like that's like he's just a cool guy what's it like when you're going on stage and you, you look and, and it's the president it first of all he was very personable and we did get it it was me Cheryl Crow and Bette Midler and Harry Reid and I was friends with Harry Reid and did loads of uh, benefits for him fundraising in new when I lived in Las Vegas so Harry Reid was the one who called me to do the show at Caesar's Palace with Bette Midler and uh, Cheryl Crow. And I would, I said, I will do it. And I would have done it anyway, but I said, I'd love to do it for you, Harry. One, I have one thing that I need to happen. I have, um, I have one request. It's not really a request and it's a demand. Are you ready for this? And he said, yes. I said, I need my daughter to meet the president. And Mo Molly was seven at the time or eight, something like that. So he said, done. So the so the, I have a picture with me, Cheryl Crow, Barack Obama, Harry Reid, and Molly. <laughs> and uh, he came in, and he we spent some he spent some time. He was very sweet to Molly, and he said, "You know, you're going to have to come over and play at the White House, Molly, because we have a new playground made with recycled tires with Sasha and Malia." And Molly said, "Okay, I'll do it." And so afterwards, Molly said. Mommy, when are we going to go to the White House so I can play with Sasha Malia? I said, you know, he's very nice, Molly, but he's a politician. And I don't think we're going to be invited anytime soon. <laughs> but you know, it was scary. And now you, you play, you know, you, you play big places. I know I think you're going on the road with Robert Klein coming up. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. What's that? For me, that must because that's not in the book because, you know, you haven't done it yet. It's not. I haven't but done it. Well, what, I've worked with Robert loads of times. So. What's it like? Because he's one of those guys. He was like one of the first, you know like the intellectual comment, like everyone, you know, what is it like working with someone where you both have made it and you've been in the business for a long time. And I'm sure when you work together, it's just like the good old times. What is it like working like when you, when you work with someone who's, you know, you're both big stars. It just must be such a great show. I hope so. I've known Robert since, uh, again, one of the things I think it ended up in the book where I used to be invited to HBO parties in Hawaii and Robert and Dennis and I were the entertainment, Dennis Miller. And I've known Robert for a long time. I've known him since then. And it's just 
people come and they know what they're going to expect. So everybody is very, very dressed. You know, nobody comes and nobody heckles. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I've never had anybody drink too much uh, it, or, you know, be upset. Like, well, I worked a lot with Brad Garrett too. And Brad Garrett is one of the funniest men in the universe. He just makes me laugh all the time. But with Brad, I always have to go on first because it's like working with Andy Kaufman. You just never know what condition the audience is going to be in because Brad can go up on a tangent that half of the people find funny and half of the people say, is he saying that? <laughs> you know, but with Robert and I, it's very, very steady. You always know what, what to expect from both of us. Now, do you ever do clubs anymore? Or is it, I mean, or is, I mean, do you ever sit there? Would you ever want to? Do you ever miss that? that vibe of sitting there, you know, late night in front of like 15 people. Was that something you would, you're like, I would never do that again. No, been there, done that. Been there. Like I, I'm doing Vegas and I have a new contract with the new casino this next year in Vegas where I do six nights, but I wouldn't want to work every night again. And I really like doing different things. Martin and I have written a new play and we're, we live near the Laguna Playhouse in, um, California and we get to try out new plays. We we tried out one that got transferred to New York and was pretty successful. And it was right before COVID when everything just shut down for two years. So uh, we kind of let that one go. We have a new play we're doing that starts rehearsal. I do always do New Year's Eve at the Laguna Playhouse because it's from seven to nine and I get home at 10 o'clock. And we celebrate with New York, the ball dropping at New York on a television screen, big movie screen. But um, we uh it's called staged and it's about two act an actor and an actress in a bitter divorce who have to work together 20 years in 20 years because they both need the money so i said if you can imagine amber heard and johnny depp having to work together 20 years from now it's kind of <laughs> something like that so i love doing different things i love writing the book i like doing plays i like working when i work i'm playing tennis tonight in my tennis group I like walking my dog. Martin and I bought a house on the golf course. I'm going to play golf. I, I'm play, I like the cart. If it's a par five, I just write down eight and I sit there. But, you know, I like the birds. So I like doing different things. But I think in different parts of the times of your life, you like to do different things. One final question. What do you see in the next few years? I mean, just keeping up the schedule of doing all different things? Or, or is there a point where you might just take a little bit of a break? Because I know entertainers we don't like to take a break it's something you feel like what you get bored but what are you what what are you what are your plans in the next few years i mean just keep making writing plays keep performing or are you just going to relax a little bit i both if something comes up i like to do then i do it like i got a call the other day and um somebody had written a part for me on magnum pi is coming back on nbc in january and they said would you like to do this part and it's one day in Honolulu. And they sent the script to me and it was a really funny part. It was about a dog, a woman who was obsessed with her dog. So I, I could relate. <laughs> and I flew to Honolulu and I filmed uh, Magnum PI all day, all the different scenes. And I came home the next day and it was so much fun. And that was, so when things come up like that, I say yes, cause they sound good. And if they, I got another offer to be in Canada in the winter for six months, I said, no. Well, I want to thank you to, for coming on the show, Rita. Uh, people, go to RitaRudner.com, and if you click, you can get an autographed copy of her book. And I know on Amazon, you can also get an autographed copy of your book. It had something which is very cool. And uh, people, go go Google Rita Rudner. Uh, look up her old comedy clips. She's so funny. Look up her new comedy clips. And so check her out. Uh, check out my website, CooperTalk.net. You can find over 930 episodes there. You can email me at Cooper at CooperTalk.net. Twitter, I'm at Cooper Talk. Instagram, at Cooper Talk One. I'm Steve Cooper. Only a sip is my guest. And don't forget to remember to eat your vitamins. I screw it up all the time. Eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, drink your water, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you, Rita.